So the when he when they get all the money at the beginning of season three and he's like, I'm going to burn the shit mobile. I'm like, holy shit, I've gone to parties where people set a car on fire because they got rid of it in Nova Scotia. And then also the cops showed up. <laughs> and well, that was also very funny because the cops knew, had gotten wind of the fact that somebody was going to set this car on fire so they showed up and they're like don't you set that car on fire and everyone's like what are you talking about so cops leave and then an hour later they set the car on fire everybody welcome to sweater weather i'm aaron giovanone great to be back with you this week the boys from the alberta advantage podcast clinton rory and tyler visit the show to talk about the boys from the trailer park ricky julian and bubbles that's right we're talking about the trailer park boys it's got to be one of the best canadian shows ever and one of the few to find an international audience and it's a show that still appeals to leftists today for its depiction of class, community, and obviously just for being so damn funny. This is a fun one, folks. Rory, our resident East Coaster, has a deep knowledge of the, of the regional political economy, but also brings anecdotes about the love of pepperoni and why there's always a risk you'll slip and fall uh, in Nova Scotia, which is what Ricky's always doing. Now, that's worth the price of admission alone, but Clinton brings some excellent TPB trivia, and Tyler plums the humanistic heart of the show. There's a lot of great content to come, so I won't dwell on this introduction, except to make my pitch to you. If you like what I'm doing at Sweater Weather, please consider making a donation on Patreon. You know, my mission here is to bring the best of Canadian left journalism, publishing, academia, and sometimes podcasting to video, where it will circulate and find new audiences. Sweater Weather is also available itself as an audio podcast now, if you prefer it that way. If you want to help the show grow, then head on over to patreon.com slash Canadian Sweater. You'll find the link in the show notes as well as on the Sweater Weather website. Okay, let's get to it. Here are the boys from the Alberta Advantage podcast, Clinton, Rory, and Tyler, talking Trailer Park Boys. Great show or greatest show? So welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here. Uh, do you want to introduce yourselves one by one, starting at the top? Uh, Who's at the top? Uh, yeah, for yeah. me, it's, Clint, it's Clinton. <laughs> uh, hello, everyone. My name is Clinton Hallahan. I am uh, with Alberta Advantage. Uh, I do their newsletter. I'm not allowed to do the podcast because I make too many jokes, uh, <laughs> mostly about My Little Pony. Uh, so I stay in the newsletter where I can make my jokes and uh, nobody... Uh, uh, even thinks to stop me from saying whatever. Uh, I am pictured here in front of uh, the Chad Chad uh, of Africa, and I'm here because uh, I was asked, and uh, Aaron's really uh, attractive. Oh, oh, wow. I am I am drinking a very large rum and coke for the occasion. Beautiful. Julian, love it. Uh, this is Tyler, also from the Alberta Advantage Squad uh, podcast, er, uh, also, you can find me on Format Guardian if you want to learn about some other 
great Canadian television content. Great podcast. Or, or Tinker Taylor Podcast Spy, which is brand new. One episode in if you want to read spy books with us. R.I.P. to... Um, sorry, what's his name again? <laughs> yes, John LeCrae. John LeCrae, of course. I haven't read him, but... I Literally, know. unfortunately, and, and tragically passed away, but uh, the timing uh, was quite wild because he passed away three days before um, we recorded our first episode, actually. So, oh, sad, but uh, lots I'd say of great writing I, to read. I'd say more like, a, you know, it's uh, kind of uh, good timing in a way to... Uh, in a way, yeah, yeah, in a way. For, for Tyler, not for John. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rory, and I'm also from the Alberta Advantage. I tend to write a lot of the episodes about regional political economy, and I'm also from Nova Scotia, so this is something uh, interesting to talk about because I will get to talk about regional political economy and this show. <laughs> but this is also the first time I've ever seen Trailer Park Boys. I've just been kind of powering through it over Christmas. And behind me, you see a picture of the Tufts Cove generating station in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, which the smokestacks from that uh, figure pretty prominently in season two. And are kind uh, of a both good... these guys also write for the Alberta Advantage newsletter, which means that in terms of the whole team, they're in an upper tier, um, an upper class, if you will. Yes. Oh. We are the capitalist class of the Alberta Advantage, and Clinton <laughs> is the lumpen proletariat. That's <laughs> very true. So, uh, so Rory hasn't seen the show until I asked him to do the, do this. Uh, I'm so glad that he's that he's willing to watch uh, because um, uh, we needed obviously East Coast representation. On yeah. This. So we do. Know. We have to be careful these days. We have to make sure we're including all the people that we're talking about that there's proper representation. And yeah, we're doing a progressive stack, and Rory gets to the Nova Scotians get to speak first. Well, it, it was interesting. I mean, I'm enjoying it so far and it's pretty, it's like very amusing and just like how it creates this like whole like mythology around itself. And there is like a lot of weird, like nostalgia for Nova Scotia. Cause I was, well, I was still living in Nova Scotia at that time. And yeah, like there's just like a lot of, like they don't really, they don't really like call out like make sort of like obvious like regional regional like call outs all the time like they just often like very vaguely about the geography of where they're at but just there's all kinds of like weird like regionalisms and like in jokes they'll sometimes make that uh like if you're from there you get yeah like pep is pepperoni like uh such a big thing there yes I, it, it actually is so like ricky <laughs> eating pepperoni all the time so one thing i've never found here but you can go to any bar or pub in nova scotia and on the appetizer menu is deep fried pepperoni which is just like slices of pepperoni deep fried and served with like a a, a honey mustard dipping sauce it was, and it's really that, good that's I'm, like, that's I'm eating some like jalapeno pepperoni right now ah. beautiful Listen, man, if you go down to the store and get me some jalapeno chips and two dollars worth of pepperoni, I'll hang out with you for a bit. Sure. Yeah, and get me some fucking gummy worms and stuff. Gummy worms. That's interesting because, like, when Trailer Park Boys started crossing over into a mainstream, uh, you know, product that was being consumed uh, in the United States, you saw a lot of think pieces uh, about it as, like, an, the arrival of, like, a, a cult Canadian uh, TV show um, that was um, uh, that was like showing a different side of Canada and and yada 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 um, and uh, it's funny you say that the, it aside from those little regionalisms it doesn't talk too much about where it's from um, because that was 
it, it never talked about it. Uh, these these pieces never talked about it being a maritime Canadian or or it in contrast with any other parts of Canada. They were just like, oh, it's like, you know, the Canadians, like Trailer Park <laughs> Boys, right? Um, which always was always something that when I was a, a teenager and watching the show, I was just like, that's interesting that they they see that as a reflection of Canada, as because like from my perspective, that's a a, a reflection of very strange maritime. Uh, uh, idiosyncrasies that, yeah. that, that don't mean anything or, or, or don't resemble anything I've ever seen here in the prairies growing up. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's very, it, it does like have that feel and like it does like remind me of like uh, hanging around people's like houses in rural Nova Scotia smoking dope in the summer. It's great. <laughs> dope and liquor are two, um, two great terms and all, ultimately I think those are actually the best term for what they describe. I think, you know, we, we twist ourselves in knots trying to come up with cool names for booze and for weed and, and dope and liquor really get to the heart of it. Uh, you know, they're, they're the perfect words and I'm, I'm going to start using them more than I do now. But we like weed culture is horrible and all the names for weed that are like, you know, have been discovered by the culture are all bad and, and dope is just like definitely the, the best option. Yeah, so it is. The, like I'm planting my flag. To- you sound like somebody who needs to burn a sweet tree nug. <laughs> well, the, the way they, even the way they approach, uh, like, growing and smoking dope is like very funny because it doesn't like include any of the normal like kind of like stoner, uh, like yes. cultural touch points. It's just like dope is something you can produce for money, and also it's something you can like people just simply consume and enjoy. Like, there's no real, there's no like, like kind of culture around it yeah. exactly which is kind of interesting which is something i liked about what legalization did is like destroy that awful stoner aesthetic <laughs> yeah. and like replaced it with something like that looks just better yeah yeah it's very normalized as many things are in trailer park boys it's just part of the backdrop you take yeah it, granted and it's a very nice thing about it so it's funny the... rory Go you ahead. talked to oh sorry go ahead clinton uh, it's, it's it's funny that um, that dope uh, becomes such the, the the focus of it because I remember as a teenager the the thing that um, jarred me the most was uh, was Julian uh, just kind of like open drinking the entire time and for some <laughs> yeah. reason like the dope thing was never something that struck me as like oh no the, that's somebody who's like who's getting a pro uh, getting a, a product so that they can sell it and then not you know have to. Uh, scrimp and save and and do a shitty job uh, but for some reason it was julian walking around with a rum and coke all the time where i'm just like won't somebody isn't somebody gonna tell him to stop or get mad that he's doing that and and uh that was the thing that which is strange because i'm from the prairies and it's not like people don't get like completely shit-faced and like my father like drag somebody in a parachute behind their truck in a you know summer follow field to get them to parasail like that happens but <laughs> it happens at night in a bar or at somebody's house not just during the day whatever that, that does game. sound like something epic that they might try on the trailer park boys <laughs> like probably in the later seasons <laughs> yeah i assure you that the, that is a true story the drinking culture at West I found is like kind of different. Like people here do not drink to like the same level as at least like culturally. I don't know if like, sure, maybe the actual like, like liters of alcohol per person per year could be higher here or the same or whatever. But like just the way that like people consume alcohol here is like a bit different. It's not, not getting just like obliterated shit faced as often. Yeah, it seems to like, be, and I don't know, Rory, you can felt like correct me if I'm wrong, but that does seem to be a kind of hard drinking culture seems to be something born out of the fact that the Maritimes 
in certainly in, in you know recent history has been a very economically depressed area right um yeah that could that could be it. it it there's also just like a cultural like just sort of the the settler cultures that arrived in maritimes like just had like i mean they're all british scotch one way or the other yeah and we all know how the British have their problems with like liquor. So it, it becomes like, well, not like, it's just like a cultural thing about like how people consume booze. The, Let um, me, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the, again, drinking totally normalized in the show, but of course, you know, Julian's trademark, right. Carrying around the Roman yeah. Coke. It's really a beautiful kind of, one of the best character, um, <laughs> Props. Uh, <laughs> props uh, ever created, I think, in all of media. It's yeah. hilarious. I mean, it doesn't matter what he's doing. One hand, yeah. one hand. Well, there's a, when they when they crash the the car yeah. when they're cha- being chased by the cops, and yeah. then the cop car is completely flipped over, and he, and <laughs> he you just see his up. hand come out of the car, yeah. with the uh, still full. And <laughs> yeah, possibly the most iconic image from the entire show. Yeah. Is that a kitty on the road? I need a fucking Um, I also love that like the the uh, improvement in Foley uh, as the show goes on and as you hear the uh, ice uh, like clinking in the glass (laughs) uh, (laughs) a little better every every season and and to more comedic uh, effect so yeah drinking totally normalized but there is obviously um there is a kind of moral um obligation to not get wasted the way that Leahy does yeah well it's it's like ricky's like clearly not drunk even though ricky's always got a drink in hand he's never really like obviously drunk yeah ricky's always characterized as kind of the frank the tank figure right and there's that great episode i can't remember if it was season four uh where he gets shot with like three um uh, darts of like uh, sleep, yeah. uh, like animal tranquilizers and it doesn't <laughs> yes. affect him at all and yeah. the one dart to each to Leahy and Randy like knocks him out for like hours on end that's so, the yeah, con- that's the yeah. conky episode yeah right? the conky episode yeah yeah, yeah. god conky yeah so yeah he can't you can't stop Ricky really um, but you no know, Leahy it's actually something that uh, Julian says uh, of Leahy quite frequently and other characters too when you know he's admonishing them and it's like like, you, like the, the problem is not that they drink, but that they, quote, don't pace themselves. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. a phrase he uses, like, all the time. And, yeah. Oh, that's, that's a, now that you mentioned that, like, that was a term people used all the time when you were talking about drinking, like, pace yeah. yourself. Yeah, yeah, similar out here as well. I, uh, but it was, it was always this tension between, um, between, like, hey, you got to pace yourself and drink, uh, drink socially uh whereas like being over the precipice of like stumbling drunk would just occur yeah. naturally at the end of the night um whereas that was also in tension with with the uh the common refrain from my father which and and you know uncles and all sorts of things which was just like you know nothing ruins nothing ruins a hundred dollar drunk like a five dollar sandwich right so you got to always maintain that you know adequate functional level of buzz uh, when you're actually drinking well, they, uh, to be social they, they, the show, right, the right. show, I think, juxtaposes the um, the kind of drinking. They kind of have the three levels, and they're all kind of different, like psychologically. There's like the Julian 
steady buzz, cool customer. This <laughs> drinking is like part of my personality. Yeah. Um, then there's like the Ricky, like let's get fucked up boys and like let's party and have fun. And then there's the Jim Leahy, which is the like disaster. Um, even Julian and Ricky at their drunkest are like Leahy's a complete mess and he's an alcoholic and stuff. So they're, they, they do an interesting job of taking like drinking culture and dissecting it into these three pretty distinct uh, forms and they have one character kind of represent each in, in a really interesting way. Yeah, I mean, like with Leahy, it is like presented as like his drinking problem is like really like done a lot of damage to his life. Yeah. In terms of like it, it cost him his like job being a cop and yeah. uh, it cost him his marriage. And now he's just basically like a trailer park supervisor who just like goes around like bugging the shit out of the main characters. And is constantly just in either a, like straight sobriety or complete uh, free fall into alcoholism, like no middle ground ever with him. Yeah. And <laughs> I like that. I like that. It just like his alcoholism is uh, there's always uh, a new ceiling to it for, you know, a good yeah. period of the show um, that I think kind of uh, that I think kind of peaks when you get a view into his home trailer during a particularly intense bender uh, where he's wading through bottles like it's a child's ball pit um about knee high in his his trailer <laughs> I, I mean I'm, some of the I, best physical so oh sorry it's gonna say that some of the best physical comedy is jim Leahy like coming yeah. out of this the door of his trailer yeah totally trashed and he just <laughs> and he just flops against the side like it's great yeah. physical comedy just flops against the side as he's going down the stairs <laughs> what, what are the recurring like physical comedy gags that i've just like found weirdly very funny from this it's like However, when Ricky walks down a steep hill, he always like falls and slides down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bubbles, what the fuck are you doing? These what are you doing? These characters are public domain, Ricky. What's up? No, man. That's... Bubbles, get back here, you dick. Fuck! Hey, Ricky. How's the new job going, buddy? Ricky's and... always tripping over shit. It's so good. Well, especially like doing that in Nova Scotia, there's like a risk of that because everything's constantly wet from it raining all the time and one of the things i noticed in in the show is like just the weird sky that you get in the summer where it's just like gray overcast but it's kind of like this ambient light like because here yeah. when it gets overcast it gets pretty dark but in nova scotia there's just like it'll just be overcast and there's just like this ambient light that doesn't even like really seem you, you can't really like tell where it's coming from yeah, there's and, like that in in Calgary during Chinook sometimes when the yeah. when the light kind of ducks under the cloud cover and it's just like this strange glow from nowhere. Uh, Rory talked about the nostalgia this brings up for him of uh, of home. Uh, for me, it is a similar kind of nostalgia, but it's more like it is in time more than in space, I guess. This actually marks the 20th year of Trailer Park Boys and it is actually still going. I don't know who that's exactly crazy. is still watching? Uh, that's some a good question. Across two millennia. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The well, the thirteenth season just de debuted, and it's now it's not that season's not on Netflix, uh, as recent seasons have been. Um, it's on their own website called SwearNet, and the whole season it's just the three main characters: Ricky, Julian, Bubbles, in jail. It's called Jail, and so it's interesting. Like, it is, I think, the most low budget. A season ever it must be because you can imagine it's all just taking place in like a 
Yeah, and they didn't get the Netflix money. No, I guess I guess not. Yeah. Um, so you know they've had 13 seasons uh, on the 13th now. This is in addition to five feature-length films and specials, a couple hour-long television specials. One of them, uh, including like a, a 2004 Christmas episode, which is just uh, really really funny. Watched it again uh, just this year. Uh, so there's also two seasons of a spin-off series. It's called Trailer Park Boys Out of the Park. This is where Randy, Julian, and Bubbles, again, just the three main uh, characters, they walk around the real world in character, like Borat style. And like, I didn't get through much of this. I did try to watch a bit. It wasn't, mm. wasn't for me. Um, they have now an animated series. They've had two seasons on Netflix of an animated series, maybe necessary for the loss of so many of their main characters. Yeah. John Dunsworth, who played Mr. Leahy, died uh, in 2017. Uh, uh, several others have just sort of quit. Um, and, uh, and so it, uh, you know, it's, I guess it's easier maybe to, I'm not sure if they're being replaced exactly. Who's what, I mean, I know John Dunsworth's character, Mr. Leahy is in the animated series. I don't know whose voice it is. I don't, I don't think it's his, uh, but so there's all this, there's 20 years of trailer park boys, so much, uh, film, television, all the different specials. They do live shows. You'll see on Netflix, these like live shows they've recorded in Dublin and Minnesota. You know, that stuff is, is, is great. And you know, the real fans I'm sure like it, but you know, for me, the legendary years of the show, they're the, they're the first season, seasons one to seven from 2001 to 2007. This is, uh, you know, this show was an early acquisition of the Showcase Network, which uh, back yes. then, you know, cable network trying to be a Canadian HBO with yeah. edgy, edgy i remember whenever you queue up if you uh play trailer park boy even on netflix it, it starts with the uh showcase like intro card or whatever and that that immediately like teleports me back in time to when yeah. showcase was like a thing that i would like uh watch while my parents were away or i was like sneaking in something it, it was always the like Ooh, this is a dangerous channel. I shouldn't be watching. Yeah, it's definitely yeah, what they, I watch before we get to like the Red Shoe Diaries. That's yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, Red Shoe Diaries. I think it was on Showcase and certainly other yeah. like uh, softcore. Yeah, David um, Duchovny. God bless. <laughs> so this was, you know, in their in their wheelhouse. They were trying to be edgy, right? And um, and the concept of the show, as uh, you know, is that a film crew is following around for a do- for a documentary. On, that's going to be shown on the Life Network. I guess another Canadian, I think it's a Canadian reference for me. I think so, yeah. Uh, you know, the show's described by Ricky, you know, in the show as, quote, like cops, but from the criminal's point of view. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is, is great. Which is a good, it's a good concept, yeah. right? Yeah, so, Mike, uh, Mike Clattenburg, he, he uh, cites cops as like the primary influence for the shooting style and, and what he wanted to do on this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you absolutely see that, right? Um, so, yeah, created by Ma- Mike Clattenburg, he directed, wrote, co-wrote, you know, much of the many of the episodes. Uh, he directed the movies. So, I don't know if you know about Clattenburg. I was interested to find out. Like, he is from Halifax uh, or Dar- or Dartmouth, I guess. So, he was a musician in Halifax. He began a TV producing a local cable show in Halifax. The year is nineteen ninety to nineteen ninety three. And um, it had a bit of a cult following. They would do comedy sketches on the show. He got into professional TV uh, at the CBC. I guess he went to Toronto, where he met Jonathan Torrance, who was already working uh, on, what was the name of that show, Clinton Streetwise? Street Sense. Street Sense, that's right. 
And he was the host of, uh, yeah, it was like a young, it was like a young adult talk show, basically. And um, I guess Mike Clattenburg, he knew Mike Smith, who plays Bubbles, uh, John Paul Tremblay, Julian, and Rob Wells, Ricky, in high school. They were, I guess they were, um, some of them were friends and they all went to the same high school and were sort of in the same social group. Before the show began, um, John Paul Tremblay and Rob Wells owned a pizza parlor in Prince Edward Island. Uh, that's what they were doing apparently to make a living. It was called J.R. Capone's. <laughs> they were like, I am into the art scene. They were like amateur actors and filmmakers and stuff too. Clattenburg did a short film starring Rob Wells and uh, Tremblay in 1998. It's called One Last Shot and you can actually find it on Netflix. Damn, I got to watch that. Yeah, it's a half an hour. Uh, they it's are not good. the Ricky and Julian that we know, but they have, you see the characters starting to bud. Um and uh, that film in 1998 was shown at the Atlantic Film Festival and I guess attracted some notice of the eventual producer of the Trailer Park Boys. His name's Barry Dunn. The only real actor on the show was John Dunsworth, who played Mr. Leahy. And you can really tell. I mean, the guy is great. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's really good. There's some, there's some, I think I found a quote from him where he's just describing his work on the show and how Mike Clattenburg, all he would have to do is say, okay, um, John, in this scene, you are uh, a level three drunk and a level eight angry. <laughs> and so you could turn him up and turn him down and you know, these different ways. So uh, the, the pilot, you know, uh, was shot on the cheap, obviously, Mike Clattenburg, you know, working with his friends, uh, in, you know, in Dartmouth. Um, Showcase picked it up when the other Canadian networks all turned it down. You know, by season three, it was a huge hit. Um, I guess in, I think it's 2003, the summer of 2003, the characters, they go on tour with Our Lady Peace. If you remember, if you remember this, this it's band. A, that is just, um, there couldn't be a more early 2000s Canadian pop culture thing than the Trailer Park Boys going on tour with Our Lady Peace. That, that, it's so perfect. I think the reason why they're fans of Our Lady Peace is because a common refrain that Ricky would often say to the police is, we are all innocent. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So, uh, you know, but around season three, season four, the show is getting picked up on international networks. Uh, there's you know, too many to list here. They didn't get that far in the U.S. market actually, um, in the first seven seasons during their, their first run. BBC America broadcast, broadcasted a censored version of the show. If you can oh imagine how, how shitty that would be. Um, <laughs> I guess it wasn't until the show was already, the original run was over in 2009 that, that DirecTV, which is a satellite network, picked it up in the States. And at that point, I think it starts to develop an American cult following too. Now, this is a really important moment in the Trailer Park Boys. After, you know, I think after the show is officially, you know, it's over, the showcase run is over in 2007, they do a couple of movies, a couple of specials. They're continuing to work, right? Um, in 2013, Mike Clattenburg uh, was bought out. That is the three main guys, Rob Wells, uh, Tremblay, and Mike Smith, the three main characters, they bought the show from him. So they own it now. And hmm. they took it to Netflix very soon after, which is where it really developed a whole second life. Um, so in, yeah. And it's, I think it's worth mentioning that in those intervening years and to a certain extent, a little bit afterwards, um, uh, before the amicable split from everything I can find, um, 
they a lot of those characters would go around and do essentially like uh spoken word review q a sessions <laughs> in character yeah. um and stuff like that and they did that to mixed success um the problem was is that they were kind of ill-defined they would kind of like show up in a place and it'd be like uh randy and Leahy in concert and stuff like that and like <laughs> for example i had a friend who went to one in a, i guess it would have been around 2006 2007 yeah around that and it was randy and Leahy, and they played at the deerfoot and casino in south calgary okay. um and it was they, they said it was like an okay time but it was mostly wrecked because it, it had no real structure and so it just kind of got um railroaded by uh not hecklers but fans who would just be like say i'm the liquor say hamburgers you know um and uh, you know just like essentially looking for the greatest hits but they, they weren't a band so their greatest hits were just like lines like like yeah. or whatever and it, and it got kind of like because it's alberta and because it's calgary it got kind of abusive um and and so you can see sure. that these guys knew that they there there was like potential there but they uh, taking those characters to the people uh, wasn't really working out. Swearnet was yeah. interesting. Swearnet and like and distributing online was an interesting. Uh, yeah. Like it, they were kind of ahead of their time, um, which yeah. I, I I wonder how they'll do. You said you said that the thir- that thirteen did not premiere on Netflix. So the since twenty I think the the show was rebooted for Netflix uh, in yeah. twenty fourteen and they and they did uh, another I believe four seasons of yeah. the of the Trailer Park Boys main series plus two other two seasons of uh, the branch off where they are like Borat style going around the world in character plus the plus the uh, animated series so they're doing a lot for Netflix but this latest season not picked up by Netflix so maybe this shows that it really is kind of maybe coming to the end of its uh, maybe and they're getting old popular. too right well this is why yeah. the, the animated series might work a little bit better on yeah. that on that point uh, Mike Smith who plays Bubbles his quote about the show's long run is this. I can see us doing these characters for 20 more years. If we're alive and healthy, it would be funny to do a Coronation Street thing and watch them get old and sh- get them, watch <laughs> yeah. them get old that and would shitty. Be funny. Yeah. I would love to see Ricky, Julian and Bubbles in 20 years when we're all old as fuck. That would be funny. Well, I, I, I must say like for me, the probably the most impressive thing about this is just the fact that these guys have done this for 20 years. And it's yeah. not the same as like, the Simpsons being on for however long. It's not the same because you've got, you know, different characters, different writers. It's an animated show, obviously. These guys have committed to these characters so fully that, like, I don't think Ricky has ever gotten a haircut. Like, or um, <laughs> uh, Mike Wells has ever gotten a haircut. I think they always are just the characters. And it's amazing to me. And, and honestly impressive in an era where, like, I think what we want out of artists is, like, constant evolution and and new things and new projects and uh you know churn of of new things and and people to be creative it's honestly pretty impressive that these guys have just been like no we enjoy doing this still it works we're still people, able to people like make it money people the still audience. love it yeah um it's crazy pretty impressive I mean, as I said, they own the property, right? Since 2013. So, you know, it's always their choice to do more. Right. And uh, of course they, you know, they're going to make, they're going to get the profit when they do it, especially since it's so cheap to do. So 
you know, there's also, I, they've become, as the owners of the, of the property now, like there's a, that, that extra incentive just to keep going. I mean, why not? So these guys were not, they were not professional actors. I don't think as actors, they had big ambitions in their career. And if you had a gem, like an yeah. amazing hit like this, why would you ever stop? As yeah. long as you just feel like working still, it's like, you know, they're in their fifties now. They're probably, they're not ready to retire yet. I mean, no. Maybe, maybe in five, 10 years, they yeah. will be, but. They, they branched out to, into, the, they have like an actual like weed brand now since it's yes. legalized in Canada. I don't think I've they ever seen it. They have an app game as well, a mobile game yeah. as well. But I mean, like in terms of like squeezing money out of, it, out of it, if you like read about like some of the production details that the the actors who played Corey and Trevor were like paid like minimum wage yeah. and, and they weren't really able to like renegotiate. Well, the, showrunners like weren't really interested in like letting them renegotiate the what they were getting paid as the show's popularity started to really break through in like 2004 2005 so they quit and they never really not in they're not in season seven uh of the original run in 2007 they're they're yeah they they quit before the the original run was even up now the the actor who plays trevor oh no sorry Corey. Corey comes back and he's back in the netflix era He's, he's there again. Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like, yeah, they were maybe not the best bosses, uh, to be honest. I, don't, I yeah. don't know. Who knows what other kind of personal stuff is going on? It seems yeah, to me that the... um, most production of television and movies, uh, generally speaking, um, there's not a lot of great bosses in that industry. Yeah. No, I mean, that's I'm... partly why unionization there is quite, depending on where, but unionization in like film and television can sometimes be like quite strong in yeah. part to prevent these to prevent like this kind of like obviously easily exploitable like labor practices and also because it's very easy to shut down the production of film or television and it's since it's like profitable enough for them to for the companies to just like pay off uh workers to avoid labor disputes they often do that is this a good place to talk about uh class i mean we're talking about work uh, you know, obviously a show like this, I mean, it's still on, but I wouldn't be surprised if one of the reasons Netflix is not that interested in it anymore is because like it is not probably acceptable in many ways for mainstream audiences. Um, I would say, I mean, certainly the way that class is portrayed in this, like I will basically defend it in, you know, the good years, I would park boys. Um, but you know, it's, there certainly there are like stereotypes at work here. Right. And, um, you know, these are poor people living in a trailer park. Uh, you know, if we're going to use the terminology, they're largely like lump in yeah. Right. Sometimes working class, if we're going to use that terminology, but to be honest, the biggest losers there are the ones who have jobs <laughs> like Leahy. And Ernie, yeah. Right. Yeah. For sure. Uh, you know, these are stereotypes of like quote trash, you know, they drink, they do drugs, they do petty crimes. They don't want jobs. They have several romantic partners. You know, so people who don't like the show, like they often, they don't like this about the show. Either they think yeah. char- characters doing this stuff is like distasteful or portraying characters doing this stuff is distasteful. And Which I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I can. Yeah. I mean, I, it's one thing, I guess, uh, if you're like, hey, this is making it seem like all poor people are, are bad people. I don't think. I don't think that is what the show is is illustrating, frankly. Um, And and I think that they're just, um, it's one of those things where uh, 
you know, it, it's very strange to say like the working class can be stereotyped in any way, which I feel like is kind of a, a problematic framing as, as if like the largest class of people in the entire world that can somehow fit into a box. And even in a country as small as Canada, like the working class of uh, Nova Scotia and in particular, even in the city and, and area that they live in, uh, it's not going to be the same as it is in other places. And uh, like any large group of people, there are people that are morally pure and doing their best and walking the line. And there are people who are falling through the cracks and everyone in between. And uh, so I, I don't know, personally, I would not, I would not fault them for that. And I think, I think a lot of the reaction is, um, you know, the same reaction that a lot of shows that are like this get, uh, which is more of just an uncomfortableness with um, uh, some of the things going on that there, it seems to be like reveling in the debauchery in a way yeah. that, um, you know, you, you know, there's a lot it's, of network sitcoms and stuff that try to do that, but it's done in this kind of um, more friendly uh, cutesy way. And as opposed to this, which a lot of episodes are just depressing uh dark humor as opposed to uplifting or anything like that yeah like a lot of the like it's not necessarily like desirable to live a lot of these characters lives and i honestly from watching it like because i also read a lot of um seems to be a small like academic cottage industry of like t doing like hot takes on this show <laughs> and for like cultural studies journals yeah. uh and the academic opinion is interesting because it's like kind of split uh, between those who will defend the show as like being subversive and uh, and clever, which is like I think the take I would agree with the most, and those who feel that it's actually bad and like particularly particularly in how it stereotypes both like working people and the Maritimes as a region. And honestly, I didn't really get the like cultural stereotype stuff that much because the show sort of doesn't like revel in its own like regionalism as i mentioned earlier it tends to be a little more um it, it tends to be a little more like vague about what where exactly this is happening other than very broadly it's the maritimes and uh what was it but what's like interesting on all of the pieces is they tended to focus on like regionalism as like a cultural identity and like looking at it like very culturally rather than um, a number of them like make passing references to deindustrialization, which is like a big thing that has happened to Nova Scotia's economy over the decades. Uh, and one of the pieces that was specifically about white trash and the show was interesting because it kept drawing parallels between uh, the show's depiction of its characters and white trash depictions of Appalachia. But it didn't then draw any parallel between the other like uh, big, or sorry, it didn't draw any like connection between the other big parallel between the two regions, which is coal mining. And Appalachia has this like, you know, long history of coal mining and like really violent class struggle. And so does Nova Scotia. Um, and they talk a bit about like how all these uh, characters are living in sort of the aftermath of deindustrialization, which is like sort of why I picked this background uh, because just how those smokestacks like loom over the trailer park in season two the whole time. And it just like made me think about like how they're all doing these like petty crimes and like if they have no money and are living in poverty and that's because like all the industry is gone. And 
a lot of the a there's lot of only people, crappy jobs there's only yeah, crappy jobs yeah. anyone with a job it's like we're no it's a it's a defeat when ricky works at the yeah. mall right when he's a mall cop that's a failure in the ethics of the show um, yeah and uh, well and it's that striving right they're striving to kind of they're 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 trying to pull the ultimate stunt which is to kind of leap over all of that and freedom 35 do the one big the one big <laughs> job freedom 35 and try and uh, you know get the one big uh, dope sale so that they're free and they don't have to deal with you know the mall cop job or the you know uh, uh, concession stand employee at a movie theater like um and, and in a way that's so that's so sympathetic right um like everyone has that where it's like fuck i would just do anything to have like the one big score and just leave all this dumb nine to five stuff behind. And I'll, I'll, I'll build on, on what you're both saying here with, with uh, comparisons to two, two shows, one contemporary, one old. Um, and the, the first one I'll go with is the contemporary um, in the mid two thousands, a show came out on the FX network called the league, which was nominally about uh, a bunch of people playing in a fantasy football league. Um, but it was mostly um, a, showcase for Nick Kroll producer and writer um, to start flexing his writing muscles and you know one of the most incredible like sketch comedy uh, minds of our you know of our era um, in that show there was a character played by John LaJoy um, who played a guy named Taco and his whole kind of arc throughout the whole show or the early parts of the show is about quote getting his nut and getting his nut was all about exactly what you guys are talking about, which is uh, uh, jumping your class, uh, uh, jump, like jumping over where you are in your class, getting that one big chunk of capital that is just going to uh, uh, refresh itself constantly without your active labor. Um, because working minimum wage fucking sucks, working shit jobs sucks, and these guys know exactly how to supersede that, which is just exactly what you were saying. One big job to prevent you from being under somebody's uh, uh, boot heel, which is obvious to any, uh, you know, any thinking person of any class. Um, it's so that, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say that is, um, that is the case in, especially in the early seasons, I'd say in the first run, season one to seven, exactly, the, yeah. the criminality is foregrounded where yes, just one big dope score. Like every season, it's like a different yeah. plan to grow a bunch of weed yeah. and somehow yeah. sell it. A lot of the it. time, there's a concern about that they don't actually want to do illegal stuff, like both out of a combination of like some like moral sentiments, but also that there's punishments for doing illegal things. So there's always an interest in doing something like legal or semi-legal yeah. or finding a loophole to, to like make that legal score. Station. And so that brings me to the other comparison, sure. which is, that the entire show uh, uh, structures itself as a spiritual uh, successor to uh, the Yogi Bear show, um, where, uh, except in, in kind of reverse, what? where instead of trying to get, <laughs> instead of trying to steal uh, picnic baskets, uh -huh. uh, Yogi Bear, as our, you know, kind of triad here, are trying to hide picnic baskets from Leahy and the cops <laughs> as they try to move their scores uh, away. And the, the, you know exactly 
and it's the exact same structure and that those people with those picnic baskets will be fine they came out for a nice day but right. that bear needs to eat um but they're they're, like, they're the, the cops will yeah the cops will be fine Leahy's fine they're both on salary yeah. they're both protected by some sort of job security but these guys who are going to move dope which is just you know in their case usually just fucking marijuana who gives a shit they're only mm-hmm. a decade or so away from total legalization they are pioneers in an industry they are um you know they're they're a hair's breadth away from uh if they were born in another era they would have been uh fucking the seagram's family the yeah getting back to the the stereotypes and that there are class stereotypes that work here like there's no doubt that there are these are and you said clinton like these are comic types like you can compare them to other comic shows where they you know they're they're playing certain roles like that is that to me that's fine you know it's kind of like these same arguments that come up uh you know sometimes italians bring them up about like anti-italian uh uh, racism like basically like negative That's, portrayals no of italians like when they around the same time the sopranos is on and there's like similar discourse actually yeah. about whether there are negative stereotypes in the sopranos and it's like yeah i mean they are gangsters and that's like a negative stereotype but the question is not whether there's a type or a stereotype but is it art okay yeah. when when trailer park boys is good it is it is very artful mm-hmm. the, there's irony used in very brilliant ways and what I mean by this is that you find yourself both identifying with the characters, as you said, Clinton, like, yeah, I, that's something that I can imagine want, like I would want to, I would look, like to escape the economy and just yeah. either live a life of um, a kind of pastoral escape where I can just be drunk and high and hang out with my buds. Like, yeah. and that would be fun. Um, or to get super rich. And again, basically arrive at the same point by transcending <laughs> material need. Like, so you, everyone can identify with that, you know, but we're also laughing at them. So there's this ironic relationship we have with them where we identify with them as we laugh at them. I mean, so, you know, I I think these stereotypes are generally, I mean, they do them well. And it's, um, it's also different too, because there's so many, there's been a million movies about like poor people trying to do a big job and like get one big score, right? There's just like infinite. And a lot of them are comedies too. But there's something about Trailer Park Boys that attracts this microscope that those movies and shows never seem to get in the same way. And I think it's because it, it um, you know, this is early 2000s when the kind of uh, anti-hero archetype uh, hasn't really been fully established in television. And, and in fact, like Sopranos, right, is kind of like what the urtext for that. Um, and I think any property that approaches anything, be it like... Uh, uh, Italian mobsters or you know uh, poor people selling dope when they do it with this spin for whatever reason it just gets the hackles up of any cultural critic that they have to comment on it whereas you know as very you could imagine a very similar show to the trailer park boys but toned down uh in the swearing and and the and the drinking to a little bit and, and it would totally skate by and I don't think it would get any of the same critiques it's that you know and I know it showcases wouldn't be certainly funny no, it wouldn't. It would not be nearly as funny. But it. It. Um, I wonder if it's part of the. Yeah, I know. Showcase uh, was n- is certainly not HBO, um, but it's that. You know, when you're a channel that is purporting to bring things that are challenging, or unique, or whatever, they're just going to attract a different level of uh, critical uh, attention. I guess. 
Yeah, and it uh, the the show on the whole uh, is very safe um, for all of its you know being on showcase and being edgy and stuff like that. It's very white. Um, it uh, displays uh, almost no depiction of like state or gang violence. Um, it's uh, for it is um, it is it does challenge normal Canadian fiction writing in that like there's very uh, very few like mainstream examples of Canadian urban uh, like ne like neo-urbanism or anything like that like something displaying kind of like a, a post-industrial uh, malaise or or uh, uh, you know decay um, uh, Canadian fiction tends to go to the heartland sometimes literally in shows like heartland um, <laughs> uh, but they tend to go to they they find like rural or suburban uh communities and find um humanity and beauty and uh uh, uh kindness in these things and they're very um their uh, canadian media as a, as a whole is very uh scared to show any kind of problem with Canada. There was a uh, a movie recently that I thought was uh, a Canadian movie recently that I thought was notable um, in that it actually showed like some, you know, Canadian urban decay. God, what was the name of it? It was like Dis Disappearance at Clifton Hill, uh, which showed Niagara, Ontario. Yeah, good movie. Um, and it was it was notable to me because it showed like a Canadian urban decay um, that you don't usually see in Trailer Park Boys instead kind of shies away from that and is just like no no like you know uh, uh poverty is is fun and fine and uh there's no actual like risk to your life and no you know addiction isn't that bad and it's actually just booze and booze is fun um so for all of its edginess i think it it really soft pedals a lot of things in a particularly canadian grant seeking kind of way yeah also like deindustrialization in film in canada like so much of the way Canadian media is produced is it's like very Toronto centric and Toronto is not a city that's like suffering from like economic malaise, but you don't have to go that far to get to like Oshawa or Hamilton. And then to see that, or if you want to go further afield, you go to other parts of Canada that actually have gone through this deindustrialization, like Nova Scotia or like other parts of the country that like were heavily involved in resource extraction. Um, and like that's what I did find very interesting about Trailer Park Boys is it wasn't really I mean it wasn't like it's like not an academic text exactly and it's not really like looking at this but it sort of reflects this kind of regional like economic malaise just like through the way it like portrays its characters and it portrays the setting that they live in and that was something certainly that a lot of the pieces that were written about this picked up and a lot of them cited this great book uh called the Quest of the Folk by uh, Anti-Modernism and Cultural Selection in 20th Century Nova Scotia by the great Canadian labor historian Ian McKay. Well, also there's a fantastic article called The Liberal Order Framework, which is a very good way to like think about Canadian history in general. And well, it critiques it obviously from like a left-wing perspective. And this book is about how this imagining of Nova Scotia is like imagines as like rural, quaint and folksy but this is like a product of like governments and industry and media to present like something that's like available for consumption by tourists. And it has also the effect of like internally, like sort of papering over like a history of like militant urban industrial class struggle. And 
Are you saying uh, that all those really colorful houses like paper over a history that we should take seriously, even though your your fucking downtown looks like uh, uh, like a Sherwin Williams barfed? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean Halifax is like Halifax has generally been like economically the better off part of Nova Scotia because it was it's the provincial capital. Uh, its sort of main industry has been the harbor. It's a huge naval base. There's also like a lot of federal government. Uh, offices for various departments there which so it's like generally kept the economy stable whereas like other parts of the province uh, particularly uh, like Sydney, Cape Breton and Glasgow on the mainland which were had a lot of like heavy industry and like coal and steel and that's all gone and it's like pretty depressing when you go there because you can just like see like the like decay of people leaving and just like also like just the social de like destruction and dislocation that's like rot like because at the time the trailer park boys is starting and like its first few seasons this also when the, the opioids crisis really peaked or at, yeah. least, at least the first like big peak in nova scotia like it just like ravaged the former coal mining areas because the the federal government owned the coal mines there until they shut them down in 2001 and so when they close those down, it's just like, just economic devastation. That's an interesting thing that, um, you know, if you were to recreate like from, from scratch Trailer Park Boys today, it would certainly have me. And, and I don't know, maybe that it's just too dark. Something about opioids um, just makes it not material fit for comedic consumption perhaps, but it's kind of interesting. Like there's so much crime reference obviously there's a lot of alcoholism there's a lot of drunk driving uh there's a lot of uh dope uh buying and smoking uh and there's a lot of gunplay like very casual gunplay which yeah. is maybe my favorite part of the show like the it's always casualness, surprising which, it's always surprising but the casualness of what wh that every character just pulls out a gun and points out at each <laughs> other uh is, is, is always yeah. uh, funny <laughs> but but you know a serious drug addiction never as far as I know, never really made it into the show. Correct me if I'm wrong. And I wonder if that's if that was just a bridge too far. And and one of the reasons why I think it's obviously a comedy and doesn't hit kind of the levels of seriousness uh, that a show like The Sopranos or you know other contemporary shows does is because it doesn't quite go all the way uh, where it could go in these in a community like that where you you could certainly see. Um, a uh, 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 low-income trailer park in a deindustrialized part of Canada, having a lot of people dealing with opioid addictions. So, yeah, Sopranos exactly. has uh, serious drug addiction, of course. Christopher, yeah. uh, heroin addict. I mean, there's a big. I mean, we have to look at the constraints of genre, right? I mean, yeah, this is course. a comedy, and so uh, you know, whereas a Sopranos is a tr it's a tragic tragedy comedy, you'd have to say it is. Yeah. It's basically a tragedy where everybody dies. Uh, yeah. slowly right kind of certainly in the last mm -hmm. season everyone sort of disappears in the in a comedy no i mean the classic comedy of course people get married at the end or at least yeah. there's something that continues the community the community is really important to a comedy and so this is i wanted to get into this point too um and this kind of continues um uh, even we can make more points about class here too but like a community is um, the community of the trailer park Sunnyvale is like really important for the show to work. Oh yeah. And I think what happens in the later seasons is as some actors quit, some pass away. 
um, and they want to cut down on costs as well. And they just want basically the main three characters to do stuff right. together. The show really loses to me. The magic cir- circle of Sunnyvale is broken, and really, yeah. the show does not function um, narratively the way that it did early on. You know, um, like you can just look at. Uh, I just want to do a little bit of a close reading of this one episode here, and um, I'm not sure if anybody watched season one, episode two. It's called, quote, fuck community college, let's get drunk and eat chicken fingers. <laughs> and so this is very early, right, um, in, the, in the series. And Julian, at this point, he's not fully brought into the trailer park world. Indeed, he's just gotten out of jail. And he has ambitions for upward mobility. He wants to become respectable and middle class. He's going to go back to community college. Quote, I'm either going to become an electrician a meat cutter, or I'm going to get into television and radio broadcasting, unquote. This is Julian's early plan. You know, I think here the writers are making a self-referential joke, of course. They are in television broadcasting. They are Julian types. And certainly I think the respectable viewer uh, is identifying at this point much more with Julian than with the other characters and with Ricky, with Bubbles and everyone else. Um, He's the reasonable one. He's worried about his career. He's worried about his future. He's the hunky one, kind of easier to identify, I guess, with the good looking guy. Um, And this is all in the name of like, you know, upward mobility. And I think what's, and this, sorry, go ahead, Rory. Well, it's like a very individualized, like neoliberal approach to this that like, I'm going to go get an education. So I have a book about, uh, about like these schemes in like deindustrializing Nova Scotia. They're like, okay, we'll, to fix this, like people just like, we need to like reskill people. We need to get them like uh, education. Learn the code. Yeah, and like whatever that was. In, yeah, like, I can't believe you didn't say that in the year two thousand <laughs> to like you know, so that with this education, that's the ticket to like fixing like economic decline. And this is like an academic study. It says no, not it doesn't really do that because like at best it just means people have like a easier time leaving. And finding a job somewhere else it doesn't like yeah. fix the problem there because it's like just like a, a lack of like a main economic driver yeah. so i mean you see that in trailer park boys so like so long as they're like unwilling to leave the park and they have like good reasons why they don't uh they'll never be able to like find that like upward mobility can i can i uh, like no matter what education they get can i give you a good trailer park boys piece of trivia that uh relates to upward mobility and into the middle class so the guy, so Barry Dunn, who plays uh, uh, Ricky's dad, uh, Ray Lafleur. I love Ray. Um, he started acting. He started acting in 1990, so he'd been uh, acting for just about a decade when Trailer Park Boys would hit as a series, and uh, uh, when it came out in 1999, that was the same year that he was called to the Nova Scotia bar. He went to to Dalhousie for law school, and so while he was playing ray on trailer park boys he was also a uh he was also uh, uh becoming a lawyer becoming a practicing lawyer and becoming uh, uh the president of the nova scotia film and television producers association oh wow so wow he, he, great he wears uh so he couldn't just be a, a broke actor he also needed to go to school and uh and uh you know do something meaningful like be a lawyer i mean there's certainly an emphasis in like nova scotia to tell people like you should like get like a good education so you don't like get stuck here. Yeah. I think uh, just to quickly butt in 
my, maybe my favorite line in all of Trailer Park Boys was a Ray line. Some guys can drink and drive, some can't. <laughs> yeah. One of the best lines in yeah. the entire show. Very much the ethos of Julian, like, you know, you yeah, yeah. yourself, right? I had, I had a friend, I had a friend from Cape Breton when I was in, in high school. Still, she's still my friend. And uh, she she had two very interesting stories about two of her friends who stayed in Nova Scotia. Um, and one was a guy who stayed and he, she was very excited because he jo- got a job at EB games. And I was just like, that that's good. Having a retail job in high in after high school is, is great and good and fine. And she's like, no, no, you don't understand. It's like, once you get a full-time job in Nova Scotia, that's very difficult. He could be there for a decade. Um, and that's, that was something that she really, really took to heart. And she's just like, cause he's not going to leave. It was very good that he got this full-time retail job. And then on the other hand was another friend of hers from Cape Breton who was the, she's, she kind of saw as the other side of the Nova Scotia coin, which is that she immediately went, got a scholarship to NYU and quickly thereafter became a producer on this American life. Um, or sorry, yeah, This American Life. Um, and and to her, that was like, she was just like, those are the two realities of of kind of Nova Scotia and stuff like that. You find like a decent job and stay there forever or you leave. Well, I don't know if that's true, Rory, at all. Yeah, no, that that's, a, that's, that's like a very good summation of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I laughed because there wasn't really like decent jobs to be had. There, and yeah, and they, now, they're hard, hard to get. Well, at this time in my life, uh, you know, when Trailer Park Boys is uh, at its peak, 2003, 2004, I'm living at home with my mom. Uh, I'm uh, watching this, sitting on a couch, <laughs> probably falling asleep. On Good place couch. to watch TV. Falling Solid. asleep on the couch watching the show and um, very much kind of stuck. You know, I'd finished, I'd finished my degree there are no, you know, I'm from St. Catharines, Ontario. This is talk about post-industrialization. So there's not a lot going on job-wise. I have a little, little gigs here and there. Um, and um, this show really spoke to me. Uh, and, and like, you know, I left too, you know, I went, I went off and I don't, you know, I love my, I love where I am. Uh, I, if I hadn't come to Calgary, I wouldn't have met any of you guys. And that's obviously wonderful that a lot of things going well for me, but I don't know if it would have been better if I'd stayed at home somehow and figured it out there. I'm not really sure, but I did leave partly because that's what people do. And uh, when you're from St. Catharines and you're trying to get a, have a career. Uh, so you so either join Alexis on fire or you <laughs> leave. Right. There are two. Yeah. There's, there aren't a lot of you options. Broken social scene. That's got the bigger uh, job numbers. <laughs> that's right. Somehow I wish I'd gotten in that band, but um <laughs> The, you know, thank God Julian doesn't leave. I mean, the whole arc of that first yeah. season is that Julian is not going to leave. And why? Because he needs to take care of Ricky. Yeah. Ricky needs him. Everyone points out in that first, in that episode one, or sorry, season one, episode two, yeah. that Ricky needs Julian to survive. It's always been that way since high school. Ricky is too dumb. They have <laughs> testimonial, they have these hilarious testimonials <laughs> with all the other characters. They're like, no, nah, Ricky's too dumb. He can't, you know, survive without, without Julian. And Ricky had they cut to Ricky himself in a very like sad moment, just full of pathos, full of like for me, absolutely felt real. Listen, Rick, we've been friends our whole lives, man. This is ridiculous. Do you understand what I'm saying? No, Julian, that's a problem. You know, understanding things is one of the things I have trouble with. It's why I'm gonna miss you so much when you move, buddy. 
You're the one that helps me understand things. You make things clearer in my head so that everything comes together and it just makes sense to me. I'm stupid, you know that. And then Julian is like, no, man, no, man, you're, you're not stupid. You're good at stuff, <laughs> you know? And this is like, I really, that is the emotional heart of the show. It's these two guys, it's the bro love. Of course, later, it's a little bit later, it's Bubbles, right? Very soon, it's his cuteness, his love and dependency on them. In the end, Julian can't ditch Ricky and he can't leave the trailer park. The end of, of, of season one, Julian does not have to go to jail. He gets in trouble. Everyone gets in trouble because they're trying to, they steal stuff from the store. They food, they steal food from the store for Ricky's. Hot dogs and bananas. No, right. I, love the, I love the hot dog content throughout this show. <laughs> yeah. Fresh hot dogs. He's cooking fresh hot dogs. Well, there, and, there was actually such a sorry, great scene where, where they like, when they robbed the grocery store and they're like throwing the hot dogs in the back of the truck. And there's also like bunches of bananas. I'm like, why the fuck did you get all these bananas? And then it just like cuts to them like five minutes later driving away and they're just all eating the bananas. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, it's a really wonderful scene. And you know, it's because like uh, Julian is trying to settle Ricky down. He wants him to get married. Right. And um, so he can sort of be done with him. But it's never going to happen. And it's a good thing. In the end, Julian, he chooses to go back to prison. Cops show up at Ricky's wedding. Julian, uh, when he realizes that Ricky's getting arrested, Julian takes his gun out and fires like five shots in the air. Just yeah. so the cops will arrest him too. A beautiful scene. It is a beautiful scene, right? And so this is the really where the, the heart of this comedy is. It's really in their relationship, but also in the, the, the continuity of the community because they don't yeah. want to leave Sunnyvale. I th- and, I, and that is really the, 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 you know, you could imagine a very similar show that has, you know, the same vulgarity, similar jokes, similar characters, but it just doesn't work uh, without that community. And I think, yeah. you know, it's not even like a political stance or anything um, necessarily, like I think we've talked a lot about a, the interesting political char- character of the show. I, I doubt that any of the people involved, while they were making it, were, were thinking, you know, this is going to be an implicit, make an implicit political statement oh, about thank, the working thank class. Thank God they weren't. That's yeah, thank God that's they weren't. Half exactly. of what makes so much bad TV now. For sure, a hundred percent. But but the thing that they do nail, which is a really important, you know, is actually important to like any coherent left politics, is the sense of community that yeah. they have at sunny uh sunnydale or sunnyvale sunnydale, sunnydale. yeah, yeah sunnyvale. Vale. Um, sunnyvale yeah well, it's kind of um, like sorry go ahead rory oh um well like yeah their community what's also like very notable about their community is like they're pretty uh they're pretty like they have a lot of like solidarity about like looking yeah. out for their own and like very notably those who are like considered the most the most outsiders are the cops yeah, yeah. The cops are Everyone always will, the yeah. most unwelcome external like invader. Yeah. Well, and there's the great episode um, uh, where Jim Leahy has kind of fallen off the wagon and Randy has uh, kind of uh, quit on him and he's going to lose uh, his job as superintendent of the trailer park. And um, essentially, uh, the you know, with some help from obviously uh, the Ricky and Julian um, and some conniving, um, ultimately gets the chance to make a very heartfelt speech about like, you know, essentially, even though nobody likes me, I'm an important part of this community yeah. and everyone like kind of backs him and ends up voting for him and, and keeps him there. Um, and, he, he did and, that, and that was a beautiful part too. It's a beautiful part. I'll cut it in here. 
Who in this park, or even who in the whole world, doesn't have problems? Who doesn't have a drink too many times once in a while, and maybe even ones that passed out in their own driveway, pissing themselves? Huh? Yeah, they're generally, of course, like um, Mr. Leahy and uh, Randy are very often the heels, right? Of course, they're, yeah. they're trying to get one over on them, try to avoid them. But there the ultimately are in the community, like, um, and the cops are the outsiders. This is like very often and like a rather anti-cop show. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I would say. So. Well, the cops are also always being tricked by Ricky, who uh, is admittedly basically the dumbest person in the universe uh, of the show. So, uh, but, but he has like a good. special gift to be able to just convince cops to yeah. like stop being suspicious. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. How do you think that works, Rory? Or do you want to say something else? Uh, I don't really know how. I, I think it's just mostly a, a sort of show in joke about how yeah, yeah. able to like convince cops, and it, it, it often like plays off the cops being kind of stupid. Yeah, yeah. and he, that they're easily fooled. Yeah, that they're easily fooled. He says they're stupid. Um, he admits himself to not being that smart. I mean, his his talking style contributes to this, I suppose. Famously, Rickyisms or you know malapropisms. These weird way uh, that he'll say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Uh, my particular, my, or at the right, I say the wrong thing at the right time is kind of what he's doing all the, quite frequently. One of my favorite Rickyisms is uh, when he describes to his dad in the Christmas episode from 2004, when he defines what a man is. I, I you know, you can't actually quote, I'll drop it in here. You can't really quote Ricky and get away with it the way he does. What did you learn about being a man? Mostly just family stuff. I mean, well, a man is he's supposed to always be thinking about stuff about his family and for to make himself to do things that are going to gooder the family up, around and gooder it up. Yeah. But that is what is a man. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that, um, yeah, some, he does, Ricky has a kind of a magic when it comes to talking to cops or judges as well. Some of the best. Your Majesty. Scenes, as your he Majesty. Says. Thank you, Your Majesty. <laughs> he says to the judge, it's, it's, I mean, it is really, these are the best scenes in the show, I, I think, are, are Ricky in court. Yeah. Um, what he can do in court is really amazing. They, this happens, of course, several times over the course <laughs> of the series, probably at least five, six times. But uh, you know, in that that one uh, that one episode you're referencing, um, Tyler, which yeah. I think it's called "If I Can't Swear and Smoke, I'm Fucked." It's from yeah. <laughs> Richard, since you chose to defend yourself and fired the public defender, I guess it's your turn to question the witness. Thank you, Your Majesty. And Richard, before you begin, I'd like to say that I think this is a bad idea. <laughs> and it's. Amazing, like you know, that judge has this kind of matronly, motherly, uh, she yeah, like en energy towards um, he calls she calls him Richard, yeah, Richard, <laughs> Richard, and so she, so he asks her, uh, I'd like to make a request under the Freedom of People's Choices and Voices <laughs> Act that I be allowed to smoke and swear. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, yeah the, the beauty of ricky is that like you know julian is like the smarts of the operation but rick what ricky has is this 
core of humanity that everyone loves and he's yeah. able to kind of connect with people yes. on a level that very few people can so even though he may not have uh the same iq as julian or some of the other characters he he's so beautifully gifted in the way that he's able to relate to people and that's ultimately what probably gets him out of more jams than anything right yeah you know you're right like he he is the the kind of the heart. He's got the soft skills of the operation, yeah. right? Yeah, Always, yeah, yeah. everyone else shuts up and lets Ricky talk to the cops. Yeah. Time, and the judge there, you know, he knows. Like, I mean, he has she has this kind of motherly indulgence towards him, and she lets him. Yeah, you can speak freely. Like, it's only fair. Yeah. And of course, he talks his way out of it completely. No, yeah. with, with cops, what he understands about cops is that these guys are also like, they just want to keep their job. Yeah, so this is often what he I mean, sometimes he's just fooling them lying to them and they buy it. But he, he talks his way out of like, this is also in season one, he gets caught stealing car parts with Julian. And um, they need to fix up the shitmobile. <laughs> and so the cops show up. And what Ricky does is he convinces the cops that the cameras there uh, filming them are actually part of uh, the police the the cops job evaluation he said that they're being <laughs> and so this absolutely scares the cops like immediately you see they're like oh and they just like okay we'll carry on uh that's fine and so he understands them on a human level that he doesn't see them as um people who deserve the authority they have he yeah he doesn't see them as people who are smarter than him or more qualified yeah. than him he sees them as people who need to keep their job. just like and, and often people that are, are don't want to do a bunch of extra work and paperwork, yeah. right? That's so right. it's always like, look, this isn't a big deal. Like, let's not get a whole bunch of extra work for you guys to do. Just let us off. We're fine. Yeah. It's wonderful how he deals with these kind of uh, more professional class people is that he understands that this is also just a job for them. Yeah, exactly. And with the, when it comes to the cops again, it's like someone has to get arrested, right? Um, he just yeah. wants to make sure it's not him. Which is and why he's always, Corey and Trevor. he's always Corey and Trevor. Exactly. <laughs> he knows they need to arrest somebody. So let's just get these guys instead. It, it, always, it always works. So Well, one of the things, though, about community and belonging that's like worth talking about, I think, is yeah. like the issues of race and gender in the show. And yes, certainly like the, those academic hot takes, like often talk about a lot of that. Like, because when you talk about white trash, you have to like talk about that in the context of like a larger, like, sort of social hierarchy of race yes and like there, there aren't like so like nova scotia has a historic uh black community that's been there since the 18 late 18th century uh and nova scotia also has a history of like tremendous racism against them like very notably in halifax there was africville which was in the 1960s was demolished as part of like an urban renewal program that was like and also the way it was done was like very very racist and so like it, it broke up like this community and kind of spread it all over over the the wide, the broader like Halifax area and so the show does like sort of touch on race a bit like you know there are like black people who live in the trailer park and there's like never any like like discord or anything about that and then of course you have J-Rock which is sort of the yeah. Like you think she's episodes, like yeah, like one of the episodes like touches on that like very specifically and like yes. looks at kind of race and it has some nuance. But what other people think about that? Yeah, that that episode is interesting. Go ahead, Tyler. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think ultimately it, it's one of these things with um, you know, and to your point, Aaron, I think you kind of made a similar comment earlier. Is you know, the show wouldn't be if it wasn't the made 
the way it was and, and the choices that were behind who played what and and what they chose to highlight what they didn't could the show have maybe um steered into the, some of that stuff more probably but it probably would have been a much different show the thing that they do that i think is nice is that you know there are no main characters that are black um but there are side characters um t is obviously probably the most notable one um and you know the thing that i do like about that is is there they generally are just part of the trailer park environment they're the only thing that kind of gets specifically brought up around race is re revolving around J-Rock and kind of hip hop culture and things like that, um, which, which is kind of interestingly discussed. But, but I do think that um, uh, to their credit, the characters that are brought in that are different races are just dealt, uh, are just dealt like other characters in the universe. Um, and, and, you know, you could maybe say that that's a weakness depending on your point of view, but I think that for whatever you could say about it, uh, generally there's a, um, there's no attempt to kind of make them stand out in, in a specific way. Um, oh. They just feel like part of the community. And again, yeah, well, that may be in a different context that's negative, but in my point of view, um, uh, given the show we have, it, they deal with that stuff okay. The uh, That episode uh, that gives J-Rock sort of backstory, it's called Who's the Microphone Assassin from season three. And uh, it is actually, I think it's quite a good episode. It's when we realize that, oh, J-Rock is like a full-on Rachel Dolezal. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, then his, illusions are, his illusions are broken by another, another character, a rapper, uh, who shows up and he's like, you're, you know, you're not black. You, you know, who do well, you think you are? Also so, specifically because J-Rock like, was pirating his music. And, oh, like, oh, that's right. It. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Yeah. And um, there, I, I do find like the scene where like they cut, you know, so J-Rock has been disillusioned um, and he goes back into his, uh, into his mom and he lives in his mom's trailer, right? And uh, the, the next shot we see of him is he's wearing like khakis and a polo tucked in. He's totally gotten rid of his hip hop garb and he's like talking like uh, just like a, a white boy, like a white boy. And um, I don't know, just the way that it goes back and forth there is kind of funny. Like, I, 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 you know, they couldn't, as I said, like the reference to Rachel Dolezal, like that's obviously extremely problematic and all kinds of debates about uh, how bad that is and like, what ways is it bad? And so like, you know, you couldn't do that today. And I do think one of the reasons probably why Jonathan Torrance doesn't do the character anymore, he, he quit the show in 2016. It might have to do with this, that kind of politically so. that character is not really viable anymore. Although the, you know, the interesting thing is though, like, so I guess ultimately they made the choice in the show to, to actually say he thinks he's black. Yeah. I think if there wasn't that exact line, you know, is there a big difference between J-Rock and Eminem circa like pre-fame, you know, <laughs> Eight Mile Days? Like outside no. of the fact that it's a comedy and he's not actually very good at rapping or whatever. But yeah. do you know what I mean? Like there's different a difference between just being a white rapper and having black friends and being someone who thinks that they're black. And I think that exact line, if you if you were to make the show today, that line yeah. would not be in there. They you would just, just yeah. cut that and it would yeah. probably be okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's 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 plausible. It's also like his like the way that J Rock's like presentation is like self evidently ridiculous, and that's like meant to be like that. You're supposed to understand that he is kind of appropriating something, and yeah, um, also like kind of doing it in a way that is like not uh, 
like very good. I mean, like very good in the sense that like, <laughs> it's like very obvious to everyone like, that it's, it, that it's a put on. And right. it makes me think of who is the, the woman who is a professor in New York who recently got outed as being like just a white woman from like- uh, Hilaria Baldwin. Yeah. Oh, that's another one, but uh, no, <laughs> it's quite a few a, now, right? Yeah, yeah, she was a professor of like African studies or something yeah, like yeah. that in, yeah, at a, a university in New York, and um, she was just a white woman from like suburban Minneapolis, and she had like that full like J Rock like way of talking whenever she would like go to things outside of like a specific like academic context where she would just sound like kind of like talk like normally if you know what I mean. And, yeah. but she like did this whole, like uh, put on like accent to like, and it was just like, you watch this and you were like, and I was, you're watching this like after she had been outed and you're just like, how, like, it, it's just like, it's almost like insulting, but it's like not a comedy. Yeah. She's like they, actually like pretending to be this. Real, yeah. Real life, and, real life and look, as four white guys talking about this, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, feel free to prove us wrong uh on any of these points but but i think there is also a difference between um like the there is an element of the fact that the culture that he's really uh taking on is hip-hop culture right and that happens to be dominated by black people um but you know they're the the type the way he's speaking is very much like a hip-hop way of speaking so in a way i think that differentiates it slightly between those cases where those are a context of you know, I don't know the exact way to put this, but people who maybe should know better given their positions and certainly the liberal milieus that they are um, uh, performing this in oh, yeah. uh, should certainly know much better. Whereas, you know, J-Rock is presented as, as essentially um, innocent of having any, uh, uh, like like the reasons he's doing this is is not for any kind of, cl- um, uh, What's, what's the it's way just to frame for a this? sense of self. I mean, yeah, that, that particular episode, the, yeah, that yeah. particular episode shows him have like experienced a kind of ego death you know, yes, when he finds absolutely, out. Absolutely, yeah. Someone tells him to his face that he's not black, and he just reverts to this yeah. person he doesn't want to be or doesn't yeah. like, and and you know he's yeah. very visibly not black. Like that's the point of J Rock. <laughs> yes. Whereas all these other people were pretending, you know, they're way worse. J Rock's yeah, better than all those sure. people. Oh, a hundred percent, morally justified, way more than they are. Yeah. Yeah, and well, and I guess to like talk more about the other like uh, idea of like issue of inclusion, which is like gender and like how the show portrays like masculinity and the idea of the family, and it's like interesting because like on the one hand, like a lot of people like aren't really in sort of like traditional nuclear families, like they're split from their partners. They have yeah, like nobody nobody has like. In fact, one thing I, I don't know if this changes, but like one thing I found about the, the show is it's actually kind of like sexless in the sense that like there isn't really like yeah like a lot of like that much like discussion of sex or like like reference to like characters and necessarily having like strongly sexual relationships, except for like kind of Leahy and Randy, which yeah. It's like very <laughs> like interesting. We'll kind of put that yeah. aside and talk about that in shortly, <laughs> but like um like the way that Ricky and Lucy and, and like Ricky's imagining of like what uh, family form he's supposed to have, like is, is kind of traditional and like also like impossible because of like the way that like sort of like the economic circumstances of the trailer park, like disintegrate the ability to have 
like that traditional family. He doesn't even have a house. He doesn't. Yeah, have he, he lives live. in the shitmobile. <laughs> that's very. Yeah. That's very true. I mean, that that would be a middle class way of life that he does not have access to. Yeah, and you um, see his dad, but his mother is really never talked about. Um, yeah, there's I mean, also the- you know. Um, Speaking of gender, too, I think they actually handle that in a similar way to the comments I was making about race, where, um, you know, are there like, oh, well, two of the prominent girls uh, in the trailer park own like a salon and stuff. So there's some like, uh, you know, gender essentialism stuff going on there. But ultimately, they're just, again, part of the family and they help out in the crimes and they they're like in relationships and out of them and and they're not really treated in a substantially different way than a lot of the other characters, which I think, again, given that the show came out in the early 2000s, like subconsciously or consciously, they, I think, did a decent job of just making it, making these people feel like parts of the community. And I don't know, like I'm not doing any Bechdel tests here, but, um, you know, there's there's a lot of great opportunities for the female characters who are not the lead characters to kind of like have their own side stories and get involved in the crimes. And it's, it's not always just about uh, their relationships, which is uh, kind of refreshing. And then there's also really, really great, very young performance by Elliot Page. Yeah. Um, which in season two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in season two, which I, I didn't even know that's who it was for uh, when I watched it initially, I only caught that rewatching it again. Um, but a really another really great relationship between uh, between a young person and Ricky, where Ricky is able to kind of like connect with uh, this younger person on a really human and, and sweet level. And um, there's not really ever a discussion about gender uh, or anything in that. It's just like a young kid and, and an older guy with maybe a youthful uh, mind connecting. And, and uh, I think generally that stuff's handled OK. And, and again, always considering the time that it was made in. Um, I think it doesn't, it didn't come across to me as like anything very offensive. Well, Ricky desires to be a father figure yet. Um, his like fathering is like very non-traditional. <laughs> you can say that. Yeah. And, and it's something like since the show is like, patches. yeah, <laughs> we're going to quit smoking together. <laughs> That's so cute. Trinity has got to quit smoking. Like I can't have her smoking anymore. It's ridiculous. She was on cigarettes last year and they put her on the little little patch she used to wear and I thought she was off the cigarettes. Now apparently she's back on the cigarettes and she's on them hard too. Yeah, the, the, the interesting thing that I, uh, I saw with those, with the Lucy-Ricky relationship um, is because like when, when I was watching Trailer Park Boys, the, um, the, the landscape was very much dominated as it always has been with uh, kind of long suffering spouses, usually the, the female spouse in a heteronormative relationship being kind of long suffering and, you know, uh, kind of standing by their man, even though they're usually not worth a damn, you know, you're King of, King of Queens, you're Simpsons. That 70s show. That 70s. Well, you know what? Red Foreman was, you know, he was a, a moral upstanding Republican, but uh, he, he, he overall was at least like a was like at least like a sturdy partner in a marriage if he if he wasn't yeah, in, fair uh, that hands on but you know exactly the stereotype i'm talking about and trailer park boys instead it provides uh this um kind of two mirror relationships where both lucy and randy are demanding that their romantic partners improve uh or else they will 
seek alternatives, seek a better life in some other way. And that pushes them, uh, both of them into, you know, strange directions. But I always thought that that always struck me as interesting in that just like, oh, you know, a spouse can just be like, no, improve or, hmm. or we're fucking and, and done. And specifically the female spouse can say like, hey, fuck you. I'm yeah. leaving you. You're a shitty dad. You're a shitty partner. I'm out of here. Uh, yeah. yeah I mean, and she's always doing that. Yeah. And she can put those demands forward and then Ricky fails to meet them and she leaves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Lucy Dicator's uh, uh, um, romantic life actually had like a weird nexus in my own life in that uh, it actually like soured relationships and led to me leaving uh, a particular job because a whole bunch of my coworkers got together um, when uh, got together during discussions of her uh, involvement with Gian Gameshi and were essentially just like in a restaurant uh, together, being like, "Well, she asked for it." type thing um and me being like ah, i don't think that's the case uh kind of led to the breakdown of my my employment situation there and 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 leaving that uh that situation so it's uh it's interesting how that dovetails with my own life that's an aside that can be cut out oh, oh well <laughs> she left well she left the show in 2016 as well yeah uh that was i mean it was a strange media moment um, so Mike Smith, who, who plays Bubbles, had been accused of, I think, like assault on a, a woman. Yeah, and when he was, there was like two caught. different inc- instances. There was a, a, an accusation of assault earlier and then another accusation of like sexual assault. Lovely. Right. Yeah, well, he, I was this I, at Dalhousie. He's like classically trained out of Dalhousie in music. Right. And oh, right. Was yes. that during his room? I can't remember if that was during his tenure there or, or outside. The, under, sorry, go ahead. Right. From what I read from some of the production uh, detail stuff is that it wasn't like super clear about where the accusation was coming from. But other than the, sorry, the, the first one, the assault one, like related to an incident in, in uh, Los Angeles. Right. And I believe that the charges for that were withdrawn or something, but. I don't know yes. anything else about it. Yeah, not that that yeah. means particularly anything. It's interesting that like that was that was kind of like a big deal because everybody kind of saw Bubbles as this kind of innocent this, sweet guy. Yeah. yeah, innocent sweet guy. Whereas like people almost like hand wave away similar shit out of like Chris Brown and stuff like that because it's part of a kind of a uh, a persona or you know a, a little bit like a kind of dangerous thing. And and I always thought it was kind of weird that he he got a pass on on that but uh that's uh, just kind of the way the world, world works people talk about cancel culture but it actually the, the canceled unless they self-impose penalties typically don't reap any penalties yeah you have to like do a half-assed coup attempt before like you get banned from twitter these days <laughs> yeah it's like it's almost like the exceptions prove the rule like harvey weinstein you know went to jail and stuff like that but louis ck still still sells out venues and and does very well financially like he lost like nine million dollars in a single day at the start but you know he's not canceled he's not you know persona non grata they're fine mike smith you know whether he did or did not do what he is purported to have done um it's you know he's still making trailer park boys and did and still got those netflix checks and that was fine um for for a long period of time so um yeah. I just want to say, so we should probably start to wrap up here. So if you guys have like certain closing thoughts, some notes you took you that you haven't been able to use yet, maybe we can think about that. 
I just want to, um, what did I want to say here? I guess I never really got around to, to kind of hammering this point home, which was about, about like how maybe it's obvious, but like this, these are likable guys uh, ultimately. And indeed, you know, this is a kind of uh, escape fantasy for people stuck in the real economy, you know, so-called middle-class who need to get a job, uh, who um, see it being stupid and which, you know, especially given the kind of jobs that are available. Uh, You know, it's kind of a joke that, yeah, that, that if Julian went back to community college, like what kind of a job would he really get? Uh, Yeah. That that's kind of part of the joke too, is that that would be a bad choice uh, for many reasons. (laughs) One of them being that you would give up a good friendship and your place in this community. And so certainly, you know, I like a 20 something Aaron and early, my early twenties, when I'm watching the show, like I am seeing a world like, yeah, that would be great. (laughs) Like if I could just, do something like that and just give up on the rest of the stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's obviously not responsible in a lot of ways or possible, <laughs> but that's what TV is for, you know? And it's, yeah. so there is a kind of middle-class escapism here in this particular kind of class portrayal, uh, I think. Uh, I, I think it's funny later in the later, just one last thing I want to say too, is like later seasons, um, the get rich quick schemes, the, the petty crimes, that stuff, it, it really blur, starts to blur into like more and more like legitimate attempts at business, like just small business. Mm. Like it becomes right, right. more and more, uh, instead of growing weed and selling it, having a big score, it actually becomes like opening a bar. Like in the first Netflix right. season in 2014, Julian opens a bar and, the, and he's uh, just like acting like a small businessman. His whole scam is that he uh, doesn't have a license, of course. He doesn't have a liquor license. <laughs> and he's also never going to pay any taxes. So there's this bowl <laughs> on the bar counter that says, um, like, uh, donation, mandatory donations. <laughs> so he thinks this is a way of getting around, like, all the tax issues, salary issues, all this stuff. And so what actually, what I think, like, a, there's another sort of, um, and there, everybody in that season has, like, their own, business like um bubbles in that season begins a shed and breakfast uh so he sets up anyway that's a whole other thing every and i think he's also trying to sell um uh, maple syrup or something like that i guess my point here is that all these like small businesses that they're doing they are like very in a ways they're very close to like what a real business or get a real small business is. And it's just on this side of legality. It's yeah. like th- it, on this side where we don't pay taxes. And of course, what is business always trying to do? They're not, they don't want to pay taxes. They're always well, trying yeah, to get away course, yeah. from all of those rules and all those regulations. And so you do see in these, strangely in these later seasons, how like legitimate business shades very easily into just pure criminality. And indeed, we got to get rid of the red tape. Yeah. I mean, isn't that capitalism ultimately in in a way? So uh, anyway, that's kind of my closing thoughts on some of the class dimensions of the show. Uh, Boy, I, you know, I loved it when I was, uh, when I was um, watching those early seasons for sure. I, uh, so I'll, I'll I'll go next here. Um, The the thing that we, we, kind of covered and, and is maybe implicit, but the thing that I find the most amazing about amazing thing about the show, and, and I actually started rewatching it 
probably two months before Aaron actually started and first asked us about doing this episode, which was good timing. But the, the, the true beauty of the show is it's just so fucking funny. Yeah. And to me, this ranks up against any comedy. Like if I was to put together a top 10 list of comedies, this would, this would be on there. And um, it's very, very hard to do comedies that are, um, that are funny in a way that feels like they uh, are changing the culture in some way. Like I know it was kind of a cult show, but often it's the cult shows that tend to have the biggest impact. And if you are like on Twitter or uh, in any leftist uh, groups, this show is huge. It's very well known and not just in Canada, like in other parts of the world, it's very well respected because it was doing a style of comedy, I think early that is almost now seen as like overdone or passe. Um, but at the time was super unique and very um, refreshing. And I just don't think there's been anything like it. Like maybe um, it's always sunny in Philadelphia is maybe the closest thing I can think of, of kind of Trailer Park Boys-esque. Um, but there was an innocence to the Trailer Park Boys. I think the, um, the uh, kind of amateurness, at least at the start of the actors and production, gave so much weight to to it and, and made it feel very unique and special. Um, so for all the great cultural conversations we're able to have about it, I think it also has to be recognized as just a very, very expertly done comedy that I think um, is still influencing very funny people today. Uh, I got two, got two uh, uh, closing thoughts here. One's uh, one's just a, something I found and the other is an anecdote. The, the first thing is that uh, I hadn't uh, checked into this animated series, but I definitely will now because one of the uh, people behind it uh, is uh, the really uh, unfortunately named Mike Rowe. Um, his, he's, uh, he's a really long tenured comedy writer um, with tons and tons of credits, but uh, one of his most notable credits is a standout uh pre-revival Futurama episode called Bend Her, where Bender gets a, uh, a sex change to become kind of a, a, a turf demon and uh, 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 become an athlete in the robot Olympics. Um, so he's he's a very funny person. And honestly, having that kind of uh, writing muscle in the room with the three kind of primary writers, I think will be to their benefit because I, I think there was a notable uh, drop in quality after Mike Clattenburg left. Um, the second part is a, a story. And when I was in 2010, I got the bright idea that uh, when I go went home from Vancouver to back to Calgary for Christmas, that I was going to take the goddamn train. And that's just a horrible idea. It takes 24 hours to get from Vancouver to Edmonton. And then you got to drive from Edmonton to goddamn Calgary in the winter. Don't do it. Um, but while I was there, I met a, a very uh, misinformed uh, 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 new, uh, Kiwi mom and her daughter, uh, who thought it would be just like Europe if they took the train across Canada uh, <laughs> to check out universities for her to oh, no. uh, to try out. And um, so we got we got talking a lot because this train takes forever. Um, and she she had a boyfriend and she was trying to tell me a bit about her boyfriend. And as she kind of opened up the conversation about what he was like, she was like kind of searching for a way to shorthand his situation. And she was just like, he's kind of like, I don't want to say like white trash, but you know, the trailer park boys, 
<laughs> so even in in 2010 it was already a uh, a communicable <laughs> cultural touchstone for this girl from new zealand to oh, explain nice. to uh, me that her boyfriend was you know kind of a uh, a, a roguish uh a lower <laughs> lower class uh teen boy um so uh god bless trailer park boys are uh, a better ambassador we could never uh we could never ask for it is also the uh, also i'm really glad that we got the got through this entire fucking thing without saying the words corner gas so bless us <laughs> doesn't have quite the international success I don't Fuck, think. no one of the thing i found about watching this for the first time is uh, i know aaron you'd said that you watched this when you were younger and finished your degree and weren't sure what you were doing but in this context like for the first season it's sort of implied they're ricky and julian are about the age of 30 yeah already and you know that you're i'm watching this like in my early 30s and you're like oh wow like it's and also like the way the show is structured that like every season they get let out of jail <laughs> and build a scheme and then at the end of the season they always go back to jail and then it starts all <laughs> over again so like there's just sort of like whatever they do it doesn't matter it's yeah. just like constantly like just like right back where they started and they're in the thir they're in their 30s already and like clearly like the implication is they've been doing this quite a while already because you know that that um ricky's already got like a nine-year-old daughter at the start of the show and uh so like they're they're just like spinning their wheels and it, it's kind of like like interesting to see that like i guess now in your 30s and you're like okay like this does like feel like what a lot of life is now where there's because of like just like the constant like economic disruption of like the the 2008 crises and then this current one where it's just like uh you never feel like you can ever get financially ahead and that just like trying to hold down like a normal job is like some sort of scheme to get rich these days and you're just like constantly like hedging against like everything just getting reset back to the way it was at the beginning and you have to start from scratch again yeah excellent excellent point um yeah that we didn't we hadn't commented on that cyclical nature of the show uh how the seasons are structured by uh, returning to jail um so uh okay everybody well i guess i mean how to sign off i've never done a, a panel like this before so you should have like a sign off like line you should just be like uh from all of us at sweater sweater weather uh <laughs> stay warm out there boy avoid the worst case ontario <laughs> yeah uh for uh from us at sweater weather don't wear turtlenecks <laughs> no don't don't wear it you probably shouldn't wear a turtleneck no I mean, some necks. people look They're good some people necks. look good in them uh, the only person that can pull, pull off, off the only person i know who can pull off even a shawl neck is tyler of course. Ah. Absolute garbage. What can I say? Well, thank you, boys, for being here. It was a pleasure talking about this uh, wonderful piece of Canadiana, important piece of Canadiana. And, yeah. Uh, have a good night. Thanks good for night. having us, Aaron. Yeah, thanks Very for fun. having us.